Good evening, Sangha. Can everyone hear me? So tonight I am going to talk about one of my very favorite subjects, and that is Sila, which is part of the Eightfold Path. So let me start off with a quote. So this first quote is thought to come from an old Cherokee grandfather. Luckily, I actually do hang around some Cherokees, some old Cherokees, and I ask them if this is a true, um, if this is really a true story from their lineage and their tradition. And since it's such a beautiful story, they say, oh yeah, for sure, that's part of it. And isn't that usually the case, right? <laughs> So this is uh, the story about an old Cherokee grandfather and his grandson. So an old Cherokee grandfather is teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. Wolves. One is evil. He, she, or they are angry, envious, sorrowful, regretful, greedy, arrogant, that the wolf has a lot of self-pity, a lot of guilt, resentment. The wolf lies. It has false pride and a lot of ego, the grandfather said. And then he continued, the other wolf is good. The other wolf has wisdom and joy and peace and patience and serenity, determination, humility, kindness, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. And the grandfather said, the same fight is going on inside you, grandson, and inside every other person, too. The grandson thought for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? The old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. I'm sure many of you have heard that one. But then we have our old old Cherokee grandfather, Ajahn Chah. For those of you who don't know, Ajahn Chah is one of our spiritual grandfathers. He is—he uh, was the abbot and the founder of um, a really important Dharma center in the Thai forest tradition in Thailand, where many of our, you know, most respected teachers um, studied with. That was Jack Cornfield's teacher, and he was the teacher of the Amaravati, a lot of the Western Buddhist monks and nuns. Ajahn Chah was their teacher. And this is what he says. This path consists of virtue, concentration, and wisdom, the framework for training the heart. Their true meaning is not to be found in these words, but dwells in the depth of our hearts. However, if the factors of the Eightfold Path are weak and timid, the defilements will possess our minds. If Maga, the path, is strong and courageous, it will conquer and destroy the defilements. If it's the defilements that are powerful and brave, while the path is feeble and frail, the defilements conquer our hearts. As Dharma practice develops in the heart, these two forces have to battle it out at every step of the way. It's like there are two people arguing inside the mind, but it's just the path of Dhamma and the defilement struggling to win domination of the heart. The path guides and fosters our ability to see clearly. As long as we're able to see clearly, the defilements will be losing ground. But if we are shaky, whenever defilements regroup and regain their strength, the path will be routed as defilements take its place. The two sides will continue to fight it out until eventually there is a victor and the whole affair is settled. That's pretty much the same story. So I wanted to talk about just the importance of the sila or ethical conduct part of the path. You know, it's not it's a not a little part of it. And um, we know that, you know, the Eightfold Path 
is actually the fourth noble truth, right? And the and the four noble truths, I wanted to say this. Many of us know what they are, and I'll tell you in them in a second. I think an important part of the four noble truths is that each of the noble truths has a verb associated with it. There's a verb there. So the first noble truth, of course, is the truth of unsatisfactoriness, that all conditioned things in our uh, our lives, these things externally, are would never be the source of any really deep satisfaction or well-being for us. You know, well-being can't be based on something that we have absolutely no control over that changes all the time. And um, so the verb associated with the noble truth of unsatisfactoriness or dukkha or suffering is that it has to be known. Dukkha or unsatisfactoriness has to be known. That's our task when we're practicing. And then, of course, the second noble truth is, you know, that's the diagnosis. The Buddha was a physician in a way, right? A very early Ayurvedic physician. That was the diagnosis is uh, dukkha. Well, actually, that was the disease, is uh, suffering dukkha. And the second is the diagnosis or what the cause of that is. And that is tanha which is um, craving or clinging, actually, clinging. Clinging to things that we think will make us happy and clinging to getting rid of things that we think are the cause of our suffering. And um, the verb associated with the second noble truth of clinging or tanha, craving and clinging, is that it needs to be let go of. It needs to be let go of. And then the third noble truth is the truth of awakening, the truth of freedom from suffering. And uh, the and you know the the verb associated with the third noble truth of freedom from suffering is that that is to be realized, to be realized. And the fourth noble truth is what I'm going to be part of that I'm talking about tonight the fourth noble truth of the truth of the way, you know, what the uh, treatment plan is, you know, the treatment plan for this uh, disease and the cause and the cure is that it needs to be practiced. And guess what? That's what we're all doing here right now. We are actually taking our well-being and our health and our happiness and our you know, sense of um, just well-being into our own hands right now and practicing that. And it doesn't matter whether you're having a good time or a bad time. It doesn't matter whether you think it's working or not working. It doesn't even matter probably if you have faith or not have faith. You know, there's one really beautiful sutta, the Mangala Sutta. It's very popular in Sri Lanka that says, what we're doing here is so wholesome. It's such the cause of happiness for ourselves and others. It really doesn't matter how it feels right now. It's just a very wholesome thing that we're doing. So I think, you know, that's kind of very um, comforting to me because, you know, the path can get a little bit shaky out there. It can get, it's not always fun and games. So the Eightfold Path, that is the treatment plan, the Eightfold Path. And um, one way that our teachers think about that is that it falls into three categories, and in Pali that is uh, sila, samadhi, and panya. And I'm sure many of you know what that means. What that means is it falls into the categories of ethical conduct, of right uh, meditation or right mental and heart training, and then right wisdom, right wisdom. And um, tonight I want to talk about one really important part of that, and that is the right ethical training part. 
And there's three path factors within the right ethical training that I want to talk about. And those three path factors are right speech. That's one. The second is right action. And the third is right livelihood. And it's interesting to think, you know, I think that um, that actually really kind of mirrors um, our impact on ourselves and in the world in the way that it, um, you can think about it as, um, you know, actions of body, speech, and mind. Those are the three arenas that we are training. And those are the three arenas that impact ourselves and impact um, how, you know, what our actions are uh, out in the world. Our actions internally and externally. Actions of body, speech, and mind. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So I want to read this other sutta. And this is about, it's called, uh, it's from the Anguttara Nikaya. And the title of it is, The Lawfulness of Progress. We might sometimes think, oh, wow, am I doing this right? You know, am I really going in the right direction? Uh, within Buddhist circles, we have this term, onward leading. I don't know if you've heard uh, Pascal and I say that. Is it onward leading? That means, you know, on the path, on this Eightfold Path, uh, are we walking in the right direction? Is it onward leading? So this is what uh, the Anguttara Nikaya says. For one who is virtuous and endowed with virtue, there is no need for an act of will. May non-remorse arise in me. It's a natural law. Yogis, that non-remorse will arise in one who is virtuous. For one free of remorse, there is no need for an act of will. May gladness arise in me. It is a natural law that gladness will arise in one who is free from remorse. For one who is glad at heart, there is no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. It is a natural law that joy will arise in one who is glad at heart. For one who is joyful, there is no need for an act of will. May my body be serene. It is a natural law that the body will be serene for one who is joyful. For one who is serene, for one of serene body, there is no need for an act of will. May I feel happiness. It is a natural law that one who is serene will feel happiness. For one who is happy, there is no need for an act of will. May my mind be concentrated. It is a natural law for one who is happy that the mind will be concentrated. For one who is concentrated, there is no need for an act of will. May I know and see things as they really are. It is a natural law for one with a concentrated mind to know and see things as they really are. For one who knows and sees things as they really are, there is no need for an act of will. May I experience disenchantment and dispassion. It's a natural law for one who knows and sees things as they really are that they experience disenchantment and dispassion. For one who experiences disenchantment and dispassion, there is a no need for an act of will. May I realize the knowledge and vision of liberation. May I realize the knowledge and vision of liberation. It is a natural law for one who experiences disenchantment and dispassion to realize the knowledge and vision of liberation. So, yogis... Dispassion and disenchantment have knowledge and vision of liberation as their benefit and reward. And going back through all of those, virtuous ways of conduct have non-remorse as their benefit and reward. 
Wow. I think that's pretty cool. Essentially saying that, you know, this um, this path towards awakening, towards really understanding uh, reality, understanding... impersonal, imperfect, and impermanent is inevitable. If, you know, we create the right conditions for these things to arise. And one of the right conditions is to, you know, notice what impact we're having on ourselves and on the world through right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So I want to talk a little bit about those three. So the first one is right speech. And this one, um, I'll just tell you, is something that I'm really trying to practice right now. One of my friends is doing a special class on on practicing right speech. And there's a few teachers out there who are um, actually doing special trainings in right speech, like Greg, uh, Gregory Kramer is doing trainings in, what does he call it? Insight Dialogue, right? Insight Dialogue. And just how to be mindful and present which, with everyday speech. And um, so this is so kind of up for me right now that, um, you know, our meta meditation, many of you, We haven't talked about it a lot, but there is a concentration and a practice that we often do about developing loving kindness. You know that that um, that chant that we do that we'll do tonight again at the last sit is a both the development of skillful, wholesome mental qualities. You know, four very skillful and wholesome mental qualities, but also So, you know, when I do that practice, I do my metta practice, I've added the phrase, may I have wholesome and skillful speech. And I actually did that for five minutes right before I'm giving this talk. (laughs) So that's my deep intention. We'll see how much that actually manifests. I might start giving trigger warnings if anything gets too. Might be too jarring. So right speech. And there's a few different dimensions of right speech. I mean, I think the Buddha was the most brilliant psychologist. You know, he lived 2,600 years ago. And we have all of these, you know, behavioral behavioral medicine and behavioral psychological mental health treatments right now. But he was so excellent at really defining what some of the dimensions of these really wholesome factors are. And he was really brilliant about what it is to have right speech, the dimensions of right speech. And those dimensions, as we all probably know, many of us know, are um, absence from uh, absence of false speech. So don't lie. You know, don't um, outwardly lie. But I think it's such a beautiful nuance of this that he's not saying always just blurt out, uh, blurt out the truth. You know, I mean, so we might think, does that mean that always saying the truth is really helpful? He actually had another brilliant dimension of right speech, and that is um, know when speech is timely. Don't you love that? I mean, there's so many things I would like to say to my partner. And I just think, well, I'm going to have to wait for a time where that's going to hit and that's going to be heard, and we're going to have some time to think about something to do about it. And, um, and you know, that's often true also. So let me get through the other dimensions, and then we'll talk about where that arena is really important. So to abstain from false speech, and that includes... Uh, and the second one is to abstain from malicious speech. And I think that sometimes... Truth, when it's not timely, actually can be a little bit malicious. And I think we need to be careful about when 
speech can be heard by someone and when there's enough space and resiliency for somebody to hear something. And when, you know, that doesn't matter, that there's so much injustice to yourself or the situation or just so much untruth that it doesn't matter whether it could be heard, it just needs to be said. And I think those definitely take some wisdom. They take some mindfulness to think about. So right speech is abstain from false speech, lying, abstention from malicious speech, you know, mean speech, which could be the truth in a not necessarily a very um, timely way, Um, abstinence or uh, refraining from harsh speech. And we can often tell the truth, but say it really harshly. I know that that's one of my, you know, that's one of the, I think, grooves in my brain that I'm actually trying to decondition right now. So that's another dimension of uh, sila, is uh, really watching how, how harsh speech is when we're trying to get a point across. And then another one which is pretty interesting is abstinence from idle chatter. That's interesting. I mean, I'm a big Seattle Seahawks fan. Is that idle chatter? <laughs> it's interesting to think how we can turn some of our things that we like to talk about or you know, people like to engage with into something that's wholesome. And I think that that's you know, a skillful thing to think about. I don't think it means that we have to give up not, you know, just talking about the Dharma, but um, I think it would be interesting to think how we could turn things that maybe don't have a higher meaning or some wisdom or compassion value into something that would be more useful. So that is the first, the first element of uh, sila, the sila path factor. And I want to talk about it in reference to speaking externally and speaking internally. All the same. What are we telling ourselves? Are we speaking harshly to ourselves? Or even knowing what's motivating the self-talk that we have? Is it wisdom? Is it kindness? Is it some insight into what patterns are in these mind-body processes? So abstinence from false speech. I think to call ourselves names or to hold ourselves to a standard that is not appropriate. I think we, a lot of us do that. We hold ourselves to some standard for accomplishment or work that doesn't really even exist. I think it's a manifestation of delusion in our bigger, you know, economic work system or in our entertainment system or in our military legal system. So internal false speech, internal malicious speech. And I see that all the time when, you know, I'm practicing mindfulness when I'm meditating and I see something arise that's kind of unwholesome and then I'll have a little flinch. I have aversion to my aversion. And, you know, I see that though. I mean, usually with the second time, you know, usually with the flinch when I can feel the flinch and say, oh, Bonnie. I get very, um, actually we had this term at the DPP that Pascal and I just taught. People said, I got actually very Pascal-esque about it. (laughs) (laughs) And what they meant by that was they were able to really give themselves some love and a little bit of, you know, kindness when they saw things that got so Pascal-esque about it. He's an excellent teacher of that, about how to be kind to ourselves, right? Oh, honey. Oh, darling. I saw you get upset at your aversion. 
It's fine. You've seen it now. We're letting it go. So Pascal asked. Have to work on the accent. <laughs> there they actually did do your accent. They were Pascalesque. Yeah. And then absence from malicious speech. And I think that's something for us to look at what we're saying to ourselves. I think it's an excellent point of practice. And then, oh my gosh, abstinence from idle chatter. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Am I the only one in the room who has eternal idle chatter? (laughs) I think that would be an interesting one to explore with just some investigation. You know, as um, the suttas say really brilliantly, uh, neutral feeling tone, when something is neither pleasant or unpleasant and it's neutral, that's when we start engaging in idle chatter. You know, because we want a little bit of, you know, boredom arises or just nothing right there is very strong for us to take into awareness. So we start making stuff up. We start telling ourselves stories. You know, for me, it was often, you know, as I've said before, um, Romantic fantasy because it came with a little bit of pleasant Vedana. You know, some kind of fantasy, right? That will come with some good Vedana. And then idle chatter. One of the, uh, another aspect of idle chatter is one of very, my very favorite teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha said, uh, people would ask him really um, very profound questions about what's the meaning of life or what would happen if this happened or that happened? And he would say, uh, if I answer that, how was that going to impact you not suffering? He was really had a, a, an important principle of not engaging in a lot of speculative thought. And you can think about that. I mean, how much of the thinking that we do is really engaging in speculative thought, like if I do this, will that happen? If I do this, will that happen? Or what's really the, you know, you know, what is, you know, how can I uh, really do an eightfold path if I live in the West when greed, hatred, and delusion is part of our economic system and our industrial <laughs> war complex? And, you know, big things like that when, you know, all we need to do is just to get back to training this heart and mind right now. You know, we engage in a lot of speculative thought that doesn't necessarily contribute to um, creating a safer mind-body process for ourselves or people around us. So I actually like to let go of speculative thought. And I think even, you know, kind of Western science is going in that direction. You know, implementations and disseminations research and research that, you know, is rooted in place and uh, makes sense, you know, treatments that make sense for a particular place and group of people rather than, you know, this is true across every single situation. And that's just not true, (laughs) you know. You know, that was another thing um, the Buddha did was that he would walk 200 miles to give, you know, a 16-year-old young girl a Dharma talk and leave hundreds of people around because he could see that she was, you know, I love the way he put it, uh, she had a little dust in her eyes and she was ready to hear some truth. So that's the first... um, path factor of right speech. And I'd just like to say a little something about how I think about these path factors. I love the way that Ajahn Chah talked about it. He said that they're forces. These are forces in our life. These eight factors of sila samadhi panya, of right uh, wisdom and right uh, ethical conduct and right training of the heart and mind. There are forces in our life that are either weak or strong. And right now we are watering right speech. Right now we are putting compost and some fertilizer on right speech. And um, 
You know, that's what we're doing as we sit here and practice. And notice, you know, um, you know, we have, neuroscience tells us that we have these grooves in our brain, right? We have these little grooves where thinking will automatically go because that's what we usually think. And that's exactly what mindfulness does. Uh, I like to say that we're putting little mindfulness putty into those grooves, and, you know, making new grooves that will be the place that our speech usually uh, goes. We're deconditioning habitual responses and views of the world. And this, you know, speech has a huge amount of, uh, it has a huge amount of impact on, you know, and is influenced by what our habit patterns of thinking are, what our habit patterns of, you know, what touches our heart or what is totally invisible to us. So it's a really very fruitful place for pra- for practice. So that's right speech. And again, abstinence from false speech, from malicious speech, from harsh speech, from idle chatter, and to remember timeliness. So the second path factor of sila is right action. And that is probably, uh, I would say speech is a habit pattern of mind, body, speech, and mind. Well, that's speech, so that would be speech. Maybe right action is uh, bodily factors, you know, that both uh, impact us internally and externally. And those path factors are Abstaining from destruction of life or killing things. And at a minimum, you know, that means, you know, while we're on retreat here, if we've seen, or if we're seeing ants walking around, or if we're seeing, you know, if we get bit by a bug, or, you know, other um, little creatures that were probably here long before we were, anyway you know, that we really refrain from um, any automatic um, action that would harm them, you know, usually kill them. Probably on retreat, that's one of the biggest things. But out in life, you know, what does that mean for our daily, you know, our daily life? A lot of Buddhists are vegetarians. And, you know, I think that's one reason that we eat a vegetarian diet also when we're on retreat. It's taking that, you know, that um, that practice, that training, even a step further for us all. And I've, you know, I'm not a vegetarian, and I have grappled with that. You know, what does that mean? And I think that's something, you know, that we all have to investigate that for ourselves. You know, that's another, um, I think, foundational principle of all the path factors is that there's not one right answer for any of it, that it's all contextually situated. And what the answer to that really changes depending on, you know, who is trying to develop that path factor and what they're doing. For example, I know His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who's a pretty enlightened human being, is not a vegetarian, you know, and that absolutely works for him. So on the other side of that, to uh, not to take life, there's also an ennobling, an ennobling uh, part of that maga or that path factor to look at what it means to honor life. What does it mean to honor life? which is to put some energy into the opposite of not taking life. That could be developing uh, respect and reverence for all. You know, right now we know, oh my gosh, I don't even want to, should I say this? Okay, trigger alert, trigger alert. (laughs) I heard that some elements are trying to uh, actually get rid of some national parks and, you know, start mining and, you know, oil drilling in places. It's like, what? 
And so we know that there are forces in our in our environment that don't have that respect for life or don't have that respect, particularly for non-human life. Actually, probably they have little respect for certain human life too, but, you know, what can we do to help honor life and to, um, you know, strengthen that path factor within us of honoring life? Maybe it's, you know, writing a letter or, you know, doing something that really strengthens your um, your practice of honoring life. You know, however that looks based on what's happening in the moment. That's why there's no ultimate answer for that because that changes how that will look and the opportunities for strengthening that reverence for life and that respect for life will change depending on what's happening in the environment, depending on where you are, depending on what your resources and time are. And, you know, that's something that we all need to make that decision for ourselves. And, you know, we could, we could have a whole retreat just on that path factor, on that dimension of right action. The second dimension of right action is abstinence from, abstinence from taking what is not given. Boy, that's a really big one, too. And by the way, I found this pen right over there on that. <laughs> is this somebody's pen? It says college.ece.ca. Is this somebody's pen? I want to ask you to please borrow it for a few minutes. I actually saw um, Pascal's pen next to his seat, and I was thinking, I'm sure he wouldn't mind, but I thought, well, I knew I was giving this talk. I said, I don't want to take that pen. <laughs> And that's probably, you know, taking it, you know, more than it needs to go. But I've heard that enlightened people, people with a lot of, you know, who are pretty enlightened, have impeccable ethics. You know, I've heard of uh, certain people like Deepama and certain, you know, actually, I was telling some people that I was having conversations with on the interviews that I got to sit a month with Ajahn Suchito in... Um, in, um, at the first refuge in November, just a few months ago, and he had impeccable ethics. So I'm trying to see, feel what that feels like having that on. So abstinence from taking what is not given, and I think that's pretty obvious on a pretty gross level. You know, not to steal from other people, and then it gets, you know, it can get really nuanced about, you know, buying stuff from places where people get paid like, you know, 50 cents an hour to make stuff. You know, for me, that's what comes up about, you know, can I buy from everywhere where people aren't even getting a living wage? I went to, uh, I got this at Walmart the other day. (laughs) And I was thinking, wow, that's a little bit of a, a stretch, but... So some other aspects of taking what are not what is not given. You know, can we really work with that other than just not stealing? Because I'm sure that many of us, you know, stealing, just outright stealing would be totally beyond anything that we would ever consider doing. But are there other aspects and nuances of not taking what is not given, that, you know, we could strengthen our path factor in a way that's not really judgmental as well. We have to be careful of that, of not getting very self-righteous, like, yeah, you got to do it like this or you're stealing, you know, to not take it, you know, pride ourselves and create an identity out of it. You know, that's what happens sometimes, that we can try to... Um, be a highly moral person and then create a highly moral identity about it and use that to measure, you know. The Buddha had a brilliant um, idea about conceit is how it's measuring, measuring us against everybody else and using that sense of ethics to create identity. So abstinence from taking what is not given is the way it's talked about negatively But positively, what's the opposite of that? How else could we strengthen that path factor 
by maybe looking at what the you know what the ennobling factor would be of that, and that would be sharing our time and our resources. Can we, you know, can we be generous with our time and our resources in a way that strengthens the path factor of not stealing? I was, you know, I want to tell you this little story of something that happened to me personally, but I'm afraid that you're going to think that it's a plea for something, but I've decided I'm going to tell you anyway because it really made me happy. Okay, I'm going to tell you. So I went on a... um, I went on a um, retreat last week, right before I came here, and it was an incredibly wonderful monk that I had actually had been reading his books forever. Many of you probably have heard the Venerable Analyo, and I think I've heard a Dharma talk. You know, I've seen him give a Dharma talk, but I've never gone on retreat with him. But last week I was able to go on retreat with him, and um, and uh, Pascal and I taught a retreat the week before that, and we got this really sweet note from um, Temple Smith that said, can I say this? Can I say it? I can't remember. <laughs> he, said, he said, wow, the Donna is like $2,000 a person more than it usually is. Remember he said that? I didn't get that. <laughs> oh, you didn't get that? No. Yeah, he said the Donna is like $2,000 more than it usually is. And he was really surprised at the level of Donna, considering there was more scholarship participants to this program than ever before. There was more scholarship people than ever before. So as soon as I heard that and I was on retreat with this monk, I said, oh my gosh, I am going to give this monk as much money as I can. And I did. I actually probably gave a pretty generous Donna for, you know, a seven-day retreat. You know, it was more Donna that I'd given for like three months retreat, really. But, it, you know, I just felt like there was some bigger universe working here. And also, and again, this is not to say anything about the Donna for this retreat at all. That's why I didn't want to say it, because I don't want you to think that I'm priming you for something because it really isn't and um, but it is true that part of the um, karmic impact of being generous depends on who you're generous to that's very clear in the Buddhist suttas that generosity to people who are teaching and practicing the Dharma and generosity to highly enlightened beings is you know and maybe it's a calculation in my own mind, but it really is incredibly more impactful. It is more impactful. And so I just wanted to tell you that one day, I w- you know, during this retreat, maybe uh, yesterday or the day before, I was just sitting and meditating. Oh, my God, I'm going to even break up thinking about it. And the thought just came to my mind of, you know, the Donna that I gave to the Venerable Analyo, and I just got blissed out by it. And, you know, it wasn't some, you know, regular accumulation that usually people think, you know, happiness comes from accumulation and all of this stuff. And it was absolutely a very wholesome expression of well-being and happiness. And, you know, that was Bonnie on that day. That's not the Bonnie that's around most of the time, but... (laughs) You know, that we can't also create an identity around that because that was the causes and conditions in that moment that allowed that to happen. But in my mind, it was like, when will I have the opportunity to provide Donna to, you know, someone who's having a huge impact on, you know, the spread of the Dharma in the West? This guy is really having a big impact. And I thought, what other opportunity will I have to make this donation? And I went for it. And I am so glad I did. And I think that's one of the things that we think about when we, you know, think about um, not stealing. And the opposite of that is, you know, strengthening that path factor of generosity and compassion and love. And it is the source. It was shocking to me just how happy that makes me. It's interesting how that could be the source of such happiness. How does that work? So, and you know, you can tear, uh, share your time and resources. There's something about people who get involved with Dharma work 
there is really wholesome livelihood that people have, or they spend their time really wholesomely. You know, I hope it's okay to say, you know, I've had interviews with uh, yogis who just are so spending their time, you know, their retirements, doing incredibly wonderful things, doing hospice work and, you know, uh, doing interventions for kids who have a sense of loss. And I'm sure every single one of you could tell each other about, you know, the work that you're doing that strengthens your path factor of sharing and generosity. That's not a little thing on this path. And that is absolutely practiced towards, you know, that's onward leading, I should say. That's really onward leading work. Is it, is the time over now? Is it 8 o'clock? You can, you can go on. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the Dharma is back. <laughs> I can't believe it. That was really quick. And then just finally there's right livelihood. And uh, that's uh, really complicated. It is really complicated. You know, I work in higher education and lately higher education is all about, you know, bringing in private sector money that, you know, you better sell my pharmaceutical or whatever, right? It's like for selling stuff out in the market that's supposed to be a source of well-being and happiness, and it, it isn't necessarily that. And um, so, um, you know, some of the questions we might ask about work are, what is the purpose for which we work? And so let me tell you a trick. So... I recently went through kind of a hazing process at my job in higher ed, and I was really distraught about it. Actually, while I was teaching the sixth, uh, the first part of the three-month retreat at IMS just uh, in September, and one of my teachers and dear friends, Carol Wilson, uh, we were driving someplace together. She goes, Bonnie, I'm going to tell you how to handle this. And, oh, my God, it was the best advice ever. She said, it doesn't matter why... You know, what the institution has as the intention or the reason why you have to do this certain thing. You can develop your own reason and your own intention for doing it. Wow. And she said, if you think that doing this thing that you have to do, that you're going to be hazed for doing, if you think that that's going to contribute to your ability to work in poor communities and to bring the Dharma in way, in, in ways that doesn't rely on Donna from poor people, that's a brilliant intention for you to set of doing that work. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is perfect. So regardless of what the intention is of what we're doing in our livelihood, we can create a wholesome intention and really switch, you know, switch what the institutional reason is to a reason that helps us develop our own path factors in going forward. I thought that was, and that's what I did, and all of a sudden was like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this now. And, you know, I, I felt so much better and more confident about doing it. It was really excellent advice. So I'll close with some I have some other really good um, quotes and stuff I was going to read. So here's um, a few that I really love. This is from the suttas. How can we promote virtue? For householders, and I think that's most of us, because some of us are like monks in householders' clothing, I think. So here's one. Just as treasures are uncovered from the earth, so virtue appears from good deeds and wisdom appears from a pure and peaceful mind. To walk safely through the maze of human life, one needs the light of wisdom and the guidance of virtue. Here's another one. As a merchant carrying great wealth in a small cavern avoids a dangerous road, as someone who loves life avoids poison, one should avoid doing unwholesome deeds. 
and here's one. I love this one. And have have you heard this this uh, saying, the bliss of blamelessness? It's uh, something that you get when you know things can often go wrong. And you know, okay, should I tell you? Should I? Okay, trigger alert. <laughs> this is trigger alert for me. We had a big Dharma craziness in Seattle, and I love every single person that was involved with the craziness, but it was Dharma craziness. And, you know, there was a lot of blame going around. And those of us who got a lot of blame, we met and we go, wow, we actually have the bliss of blamelessness. Because we knew that some of the ways that things were being contorted, that we hadn't actually done any of those things. And it would allowed us to really sit with the craziness with an incredible amount of equanimity. So this is what uh, the Buddha says about the bliss of blamelessness in the Anguttara Nikaya. Knowing the bliss of freedom from debt, that's an interesting one, and re- recollecting the bliss of having, enjoying the bliss of wealth. The mortal, the mortal then sees clearly with discernment, with discernment, the wise seeing clearly knows both sides that those that these are not worth one sixteenth of one sixteenth of the bliss of blamelessness. Essentially, that wealth, you know, having a lot of accumulation, not having any debt, you know, the freedom of that is not worth even the slightest bit of the bliss of blamelessness. And one last thing, that there's these two qualities that often come up when ones are on retreat, and I've actually seen this in, a, in um, some people that I've interviewed with, you know, spiritual friends with, and those are something called hiri and otapa, fear of wrongdoing and shame of wrongdoing. And they're actually really wholesome qualities, but they actually can be very painful just remembering things that you have done that might have hurt other people. Hiri, H-I-R-I, and Otapa. And, you know, they're, it's very common to get them. And they're actually called guardians of the world. And, you know... And as we said before, anything that has happened in the past or even in this moment is due to causes and conditions in the past. And, you know, it's right that it's here. These are karmic unfolding. And any control we want to have over our, um, you know, our virtue or our sila in the future, it all depends on the quality of our mind in this moment right now. What we're doing right now. And that now carried into the infinite future, infinite future. So with that, let's, let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.